We are continuing our series in Proverbs. We're looking today at Proverbs chapter 9. So pull out your Bibles, open them up. Proverbs chapter 9. We are going to walk verse by verse through the entire chapter. Pull out your notebooks, get ready to take some notes, get ready to write some things down. As we look at Proverbs chapter 9, keep your Bibles open there because as I said, we're going through every verse in this chapter today. If you don't have your Bibles, get your phone out, flip past all the apps that will distract you. Don't go to Instagram or Facebook, get your Bible out. You need verse by verse, you need to be able to look and follow along with us. I'm not going to read all 18 verses to start us off, uh, but I will read verses 1 through 6 to start us off. Before I do that, Proverbs chapter 9. Verses 1 through 6 gives you an invitation. Verses 13 through 18 gives you a second invitation. Verses 7 through 12, kind of set in the middle of the text, talks to you about the contrasting image of which invitation you're likely going to take depending on who you are. If you are a person of wisdom, you're likely going to go one way. If you are a person that is a scoffer, a person that is described as a fool, a person that is not wise, you're going to take another direction. And so there's this contrasting image, and the text does this on purpose, because when it comes to the second invitation, it uses very similar language. You see it there in verse 4, you'll see it in verse 16, where the, the language is the same. The invitation looks similar, but at the very end, there's a vast difference in the outcomes. So today, we're going to look at two invitations, and I'm going to challenge you to think through which one of the invitations you will accept. Which direction will you go? Will you go in the way of wisdom or will you go in the way of folly? And this is not a one-time decision. This is one of those trajectory decisions that we make. And then over and over and over again, we are confronted with the choice of wisdom or folly. And so we get to look at the characteristics of the two today. You might think this is a simple, easy choice. I'm always going to choose wisdom because I want to choose wisdom. And especially after looking at the text today and laying out the characteristics, you're going to say, I want to choose wisdom. But the truth of the matter is that this is not a fair choice because our hearts are not headed right down the middle with an option to go to the left or to the right. The truth of the matter is that our hearts are inclined to folly. With Adam and Eve and their fall in the garden and the sin nature that they then inherited and have passed on to every man and woman that exists on this planet, which includes every man or woman in this auditorium today, we have a sin nature that inclines all of us and inclines me as I feel it to go the way of folly and not the way of wisdom. So if I do nothing, if I just walk along the path, I am gonna go down the way of folly because that's the way I'm inclined. I have to intentionally decide that I want to choose to go the way of wisdom. So this is not a simple choice. This is not like we just say, well, that makes perfect sense. We're going to do this for the rest of our life. This is not a simple choice. This is a difficult, lifelong choice that we must choose over and over and over again with intentional work, with reading the Word of God, with memorizing the Word of God, with meditating on the Word of God, with building a life that has believers surrounded around us, building a life invested into a local church, making sure we put our life on a trajectory to make wise decisions, not foolish decisions. It's not a simple choice, but it is the way of wisdom. Would you stand with me as we read verses 1 through 6 in the honor of the reading of God's Word? Wisdom has built her house. 
She has honed her seven pillars. She has slaughtered a beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine I have mixed, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Dear Lord, I pray that today you would help us to see clearly what your word is saying to us here. I pray that you would help us to let it burn deep into our minds and in our hearts and to bring it to memory in the days and the times when we need it. For your honor and your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. In verses one through six, what we look at first is the invitation of wisdom, the way of wisdom. It talks to us about how wisdom has done her work. So on the stage for you today, I have two doors. These two doors represent two different invitations. This particular door would represent the way of wisdom. And you can see this door, it's a nice door. But what you understand through looking at the invitation to come into this door is that there are several things that have been prepared. We look at verse one and it tells us that wisdom has built the house. Wisdom has done work. Wisdom has built a house. There's effort that goes into building the house. And it says to us, she has honed her seven pillars. Now, the seven pillars, you know, people get crazy trying to figure out what all these numbers mean all throughout the Bible, right? So there are commentators that have all sorts of ideas about what the seven mean. The seven in the different uh, commentaries, even states that it could be everything like the five planets and the sun and the moon that were the known five planets of the time. They talk about how it could be somebody else's house. It could be seven is the number of completion. It could be that there were seven days of creation. What it probably means is the writer's indicating to us that this is a well-done, completed, well-built, thought-out house that's quite large. It doesn't have two pillars. It has seven pillars. So this house has been built. These pillars are there. They demonstrate stability. They demonstrate work. So get this in your mind, this first invitation. We are being told by the writer that this takes work. This takes effort. This house has been built. The pillars are there. It says in verse two, she has slaughtered her beast or literally in the text, she has slaughtered her slaughter. Now, this does not mean she's gone out into the woods and shot a squirrel. This is not a small slaughter. This is a feast. She has slaughtered her beast. We get in our minds the image then of the oxen or of the fatted calf or something that takes effort. And we don't do this these days. In fact, we do. We do so little of this that we don't even know what it takes to do something like this. Because all we do is go to Walmart or Kroger or something like that. And we pick up our beef in the beef aisle and we look at it to make sure it looks good. And they probably have put things in it to make it look even better so that we'll buy it. Because we have no clue what goes into this. But this is work. If you have ever been around the process of preparing an animal from live status to eating status, there's a lot of steps in between and not all of them are appetizing, right? You don't wanna see how the sausage is made. You just wanna eat the sausage, right? So here there's work that has taken place. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. Some people might say she's mixed it with water. Some indicate that wouldn't have been right. It's been mixed with, with different spices and things to make it taste good, to make it something that is desirable. And so she has mixed her wine and she has set her table. How many of you like to have a nice table? You like it? How many of you like paper plates? Yeah, I, 
There are times for things like that, right? I mean, you know, Dixie can look like fine china. It's got flowers on it. But when, when, you're, when you have this really nice feast going on, you don't pull out your paper plates. You've got your table set. You, you, you pull out your best tablecloth and you put your tablecloth down and, and you make sure that your place setting is just right and you have your dessert fork up there at the top. So if you're ever wondering the forks, the dessert fork or spoon's gonna be up at the top. You're gonna work your way from the outside in. Your smaller fork on your left-hand side, your salad fork. The larger fork's gonna be for your dinner. You're gonna have your spoon and your knife sitting on the other side. The plate's gonna be there. Everything's gonna be set just right the coffee cup on the right-hand side, flip it over if you don't want coffee. You've got your glass, everything's there, right? This is kind of the image we're getting in our mind. Can you see the preparation that has taken place? Wisdom has said, I'm building a house. It's gonna be a big house. It's gonna be a thorough house with seven pillars and I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna get the oxen, the best oxen, the fatted calf. It's gonna be a, a feast with meat and meat was not a common thing in a feast in this day and time. We take for granted how often we eat meat. I mean, we go, to, we go to McDonald's and get mad if our double cheeseburger is not ready in three minutes or less, right? And, and this was the way it was in the old times. It took work. She puts it together. The finest drink, the finest food, the table is set, everything is prepared, and then she sends out her young women to go call up into the highest places in the town. A general call that would go out to all people so that all could say, come in and have a relationship with wisdom. Learn wisdom. Eat of my bread. Drink of the mixed wine. What does that mean? That means that we should partake of the wisdom that's gonna be talked about here. The call. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. What does this mean, the simple we encountered it in Proverbs chapter one. We talked about how the simple can mean the youth. The simple can mean the untaught, the unsophisticated, the naive, who needed to learn instruction in order to be wise, in order to be prudent, in order to make good decisions. Perhaps these are, are calling out to those who could get tempted one way or the other, just saying, let's root ourselves deeply into wisdom, into the word of God, into the Lord. She calls, come, eat of my bread. Hard work and preparation went into it. Drink of the wine I have mixed. Verse six, this call is to come and eat, but then this call is also to leave your simple ways. It's to say to us, don't walk for the rest of your life in pure simplicity. It's to say to us in modern times, don't live your life for your Xbox gamer score. Don't live your life in mindless activity of simplicity, but live a life of intentionality, strategic, intentional thought. Not that I think there's anything wrong with playing video games every now and then. Me and my little buddy love to play video games all the time. We play the Lego video games. We've beaten just about every Lego video game that exists, except Lego Ninjago. We haven't bought it yet, but we'll get there. <laughs> but we shouldn't live a life that is characterized by just going through without thinking, without being intentional, a life of being simple. Leave your simple ways. Come, look what it offers here. Live and walk in the way of insight. All right, so we've got a door here. We have an invitation. This door has taken a lot of work. It has taken a lot of preparation. It is not easy. 
It is hard, it is diligent, but it has insight behind it. It has wisdom. And so now our text transitions, and we'll come back to the door, but our text transitions to describing for us the two differences. So now we get to see a mirror. We get to hold a mirror up in front of our face and say to ourselves, which one am I? Which way do I respond? What do I look like? How do I measure up today? It's quiz day, spiritually speaking. You're taking the quiz to see how you measure up. Look at what it says in verses seven through 12. Verse seven says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused. Now, some of you might think that's what happened to me and that's why I have a black eye, but that's not the case, all right? Uh, flag football, in case you're wondering why it's, it's not fight club, we don't talk about Fight Club. It, it's, <laughs> that, somebody put that on Facebook. I thought it was funny. It's, it's, it wasn't, we had a hard trustee meeting. That was a good one too. It was, it was flag football because I'm really too old to play, but I really love it and I like being out there. So anyway, when you correct a scoffer, you get yourself abuse. He who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Verse seven here tells us the scoffer is not like the simple. The scoffer is the person who has made up his or her mind that they don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear what you have to say. So ask yourself the question, are you there? Have you ever been there? Because if you ask, have you ever been there? The answer is probably yes. Because somebody comes along and tells you something and you don't like what they're telling you. And in your heart and in your mind, whether it comes out of your mouth or not, you're sitting there saying, don't talk to me about this. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I am sick and tired of you telling me how I'm supposed to live my life or what I'm supposed to do. And that rejection of instruction of someone that loves about you or cares about you is indicative of the scoffer. You correct the scoffer, you get abuse. You reprove a wicked man and you incur injury. Now notice scoffer and wicked man, they're both there synonymous of the same type thing. Verse eight, the suggestion becomes a command. Do not reprove a scoffer because he will hate you. Reprove a wise man though, and he will love you. Notice what it says here. The scoffer will hate, the wise man will love. What does hate mean? Hate means you reject, you don't accept. When somebody tries to correct you, when somebody tries to help you, do you reject that? Do you hate that somebody's trying to talk to you? Does pridefulness well up in your heart and in your mind and in your attitude in such way that you say, don't talk to me, I don't wanna hear this? Does your heart put up full shields at full strength, rejecting everything that comes in? It says here that the wise person doesn't put up those shields. The wise person loves. The love meaning embrace, meaning receives, takes to heart, understands that a person who is trying to correct you for the most part and in most times, and in this case, is the person who loves you, who wants you to grow in godliness, who is out for your benefit, and they're talking to you about these things because they want you to succeed and excel in life. And the wise person takes that instruction and they love that instruction. They love that there is somebody that cares enough about them to say to them, this is a better way. It's not so much about hate and love as it is about rejection and acceptance of a philosophy. Where are you? Habitually, repeatedly, we all have our bad days, but where are you? Proverbs 5.12 gives us a cross-reference for this, and it says, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. It's characterized of the foolish person. Proverbs 12, one says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And in our hearts, we say, I don't like this. 
Because in our hearts, we don't like to be wrong. We don't like to be corrected. We don't like to have somebody come along and reprove or rebuke or correct or to adjust our thinking. We well up inside and say, I don't want it. I don't like it. I, I want to be the guy that's the right all the time. I want to be the one correcting others. I want to be the one rebuking or reproving others. I don't want to be the one sitting underneath that because it takes humility to accept that. Are you prideful or are you humble? Proverbs 1, 29 through 33 gives us another cross-reference here in the book of Proverbs on this. It says, because they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease a word of correction, a word of reproof, a word of rebuke can be helpful. I'll give you a couple of examples. So yesterday, I, I used a word, a, a word for a, a place that is downstairs in the student center. Down chucks, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, I see you up there, all right. Um, and, and afterwards, I had a friend, Chris Bronze, wherever you are in here, Chris, thank you. And Adam Sutherland, too, came up. And they said, you know, what, you know what people were talking about? They were talking about the fact that you take that word and make it two syllables and put a G in both of them. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sitting down here on the stage thinking, I do what? I don't do that. And then I, I repeat it a couple of times, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I do do that, don't I? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, there's two Gs in that word. I'm not saying the word. Yeah, I'm thoroughly embarrassed to say the word right now. It's... <laughs> It's going to be referred to as the eating establishment in the bottom of the student center from now on. Yeah, I'm changing the name to that right now. All right, we're done. Yeah. So, and, and if you have no clue what I'm talking about, that's okay. I'm all right with that. All right. So, we'll, we'll move on. So, all right. I grew up in the sticks of South Carolina. All right. I, when I go home, they talk to me about my city accent. I know you all can't believe that, but they talk to me about how I have a city accent. That means I'm a man without a home. I, I can't go back to South Carolina and fit in. I don't, I've got the country accent here. It's I, whatever. All right, it's just life. <laughs> so I can get all depressed about that, or I can just say, hey, you know what? Somebody cared enough to come tell me what the real deal was. And there was a risk there. How's he going to react to this? He's going to get mad? He's going to fuss? He's going to... Yeah. No, there's a, there's a risk when you go to tell somebody the truth. I remember the time that was the most influential in my life. I, was, I, I had taken a year off from school to go do karate and stuff like that, and I'd come back to school, and I had changed my major. I had moved out of elementary education. I had no major. So I go to my advisor, and my advisor says, you have to choose a major. I said, okay, what should I major in? Good thought there, right? Yeah, <laughs> life plan. Don't mimic that part of the story, all right? And the advisor looked at me with a smile on his face and said, you should major in English. Now, in my prideful arrogance, don't clap yet, in my prideful arrogance, I thought, he's seen some great writing ability or speaking ability, and he thinks I'm going to excel at the English language. And so I said, sign me up. He smiled and laughed a little bit out loud as he signed the form and handed it to me. I should have known something was up. When an advisor laughs as they sign your form, that's usually not a good sign, all right? 
So I go into the upper level English classes because I was a junior at the time. And so I'm sitting in an upper level English class, nine students in this class at a small private Christian university. And we're sitting there and I'm sitting in the seat closest to the teacher because I got the class late and those are the last ones to fill up. And I sit down in the class and, and the teacher looks at me and says, what did you think of the reading last night? In the class, the book we were reading is Critical Theory Since Plato. So I had read the book. I don't know that I understood what the book said, but I had read the book and I'm sitting in the seat and, and the teacher asked me the question and my response was, I think he done a good job. Okay, for the other third of you, for the other third of you that didn't laugh, it's not he done, all right? It's he did. We'll talk about the grammar later, all right? So the teacher looks back at me and you remember she's sitting here, I'm sitting here. She looks over at me and she said, he did. I'm glad you think so too. <laughs> In a short conversation of about three minutes, there were at least a few more grammatical errors. And the only other guy that was in the classroom, who's actually now a preacher, but the only other guy who was in the classroom says out loud, he's doing this on purpose, nobody's that stupid. Yeah. Aren't you excited about your president and his intelligence level now, huh? Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. So I'm sitting in class thoroughly embarrassed, absolutely thoroughly embarrassed as I can be. Face is red. It was so bad that heart's beating fast, sweat begins to drip from eyebrows. And like, if you ever been so embarrassed, you start sweating, like you can't stop it because you just, you can't think about anything else. I have no clue what the rest of class was about because I'm just sitting there thinking, what in the world happened? All of the world knew what was going on except me. And I'm sitting there like a spotlight is on me and everybody's laughing and pointing. And there I am. So class ends and I bolt. I mean, Usain Bolt had nothing on me leaving that class. I was out the door and around the corner. And then everybody leaves and I watch them and I see the teacher go around the corner and I follow the teacher stealth FBI skills and follow the teacher around to her office and she sits down behind her desk and I come in and I knock on her door and I peek my head around the corner and she looks at me with a furrowed brow and she points her finger and she says, sit down. And she thought I did all this on purpose. She thought I was being a jerk. I had no clue. I sat down and I said to her, can you please tell me what happened? And the furrow brow went away, and she said, you really don't know, do you? I said, I don't have a clue. And she began to explain to me the English language. That's a good thing for an upper-level English major to know, right? You know, he did, we, I, where I grew up, it was he done it, and, and we was. In fact, where I grew up, it, you would hear preachers preach about Jesus done it all. On the cross, Jesus done it all. It would become the preaching point. They repeated like eight times. He done it all. And, and amen. I mean, there was nobody saying, get your grammar right. It was amen. And so, so this is where I grew up. But I'm sitting in this office at a moment where I am in ignorance, not stupidity, ignorance, learning that there are things I have no clue about. From that moment in that time forward, that English teacher would write down on a note card all the rules I violated in my upper level English classes and hand them to me at the end of the week so I could go look them up. 
Every paper I wrote, I had to write three times. The first time was a C with a mandatory rewrite. The second time was a B with a mandatory rewrite. Third time was typically an A or something of that nature. I remember getting to the end of my senior year, two years of doing this, right? I, I had learned the drill. I'd already written the first paper. I had already written the second paper, right? I had already gone back and found the errors, had it written. It was sitting on the shelf so that I could just take the marks you made, make a few more changes, turn it in, it would be ready. I got the paper back and it said at the top, A, you're ready for graduate school. Now, ever since, <laughs> she was an awesome teacher, it's okay. Ever since that moment, every time I published a chapter in a book, written a book, done any, I send her a copy of the book. I send it back to her with a note, thank you. <laughs> now, I, I tell you that for a couple of reasons, but one is to say to you, if you feel like you don't belong, I felt like I didn't belong. If you feel like there's somebody rejecting you, rebuking you, reproving you, or trying to correct you, you've got two choices. You've got choice number one, to put your arms up, Scotty shields at full strength, don't let anything through and keep it all away. Or you can with humility respond and you say, you know what, I, I need some help here. And that's our choice. And the text tells us that the scoffers say, no, I don't want anything to do with it. But the wise person, look at what it says in verse nine. This is the lifelong learner. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man. Notice the wise man is the righteous man. We saw the fool, we saw the sinner, we saw the scoffer, we saw the mocker. Now we see the wise man who's the righteous man. And you teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. It's the great paradox of Proverbs. Once we think we have arrived, we become the fool. And as long as in humility we say, teach me more, let me gain more wisdom. I don't have it all. There is always more to learn. We are the wise person at that point in time in life. Here, what do we learn? What does wisdom give? Verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Have you ever noticed that before? Of course you have. Proverbs 1, 7. It's the theme verse for the year. It harkens it back to mind. In fact, here it's clear as to what it means, the fear of the Lord. The word used for beginning indicates to us it's not a beginning that you start and then leave. It is a beginning that has implications from that point forward. It is the foundation of the house upon which we build. This is the musical notes of the score that we are going to write. This is the alphabet of the words that form the poem that we are going to create. You learn the fear of the Lord as the initial wisdom, but you never leave it. You never get over it. You never get away from it. Fear of the Lord to the sinner who rejects Christ is pure fear. They are afraid of him. Fear of the Lord to the child adopted by the king is a reverent awe of worship in his majesty. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One, Holy One being plural here, the plural of majesty indicating to us the complexity, the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied and your years will be added to your life. If you're wise, you're wise for yourself. If you scoff, you will bear it alone. Verse 12, the individual personal accountability that takes place. You know, the one thing that you can't borrow or you can't loan is your character. Who you are is who you are. And one day you will stand before Christ 
And when you stand before Christ, it doesn't matter who mom or dad was. It doesn't matter what church you attended. It doesn't matter about grandpa or grandma. It doesn't matter about your family lineage or where your membership was. Your relationship with Christ is what matters, and it's one-on-one. Now, this verse doesn't mean your decisions don't have implications on others. You think about divorce that has implications on the entire family. You think about alcoholism or drug addiction that has implications on those around you. You think about implications of a student who cheats in a class and either ruins the curve for others or gets caught and then gets expelled and then there's financial consequences for things of that nature. You think about these sins that have consequences elsewhere, but in eternity, you're gonna stand alone. It is your wisdom, it is your choice. And I wish, students, I really wish, I wish that I could make this choice for you. See, this is an easy choice for me to make for you. I want you to choose the way of wisdom. I want you to go through this door. It's harder for me to make the choice for myself because my sin nature is tugging me to the way of folly. But when I look at your lives and I look at your future and I look at where you're going, I don't want you to experience the heartache and the heartbreak. And there are parents in the room that would say the same thing. They would plead with you. They would say with you, choose the way of wisdom. It adds life. There's another invitation. This invitation is the invitation of folly. Notice what it says in verse 13. Three things about folly. Folly is loud. You ever been around a loud person that doesn't know they're loud? And the whole time they're talking, you're not really hearing what they're saying. You're just saying, dude, why are you so loud? Chill out. I'm right here. I don't have hearing aids. I can't turn them down. So lower it. All right, chill. Come on. Where's the volume button on this thing? Loud. Why loud? Loud gets your attention. It's loud. The door of folly It's seductive. It's the way with all temptation. Temptation lures us because it is seductive in some nature. It gives us some appeal that we're going to have something without working for it or some some, some pleasure that, that perhaps we don't deserve. And so there's an appeal with the seductive nature. And notice what it says here. It says, even the woman folly knows nothing. The woman folly is simplistic. The woman folly is calling out to the simple. She has nothing to offer them. She's simple herself. Here, the way of of folly, the way that is not wise, the woman folly is personified here as a father talking to a son. Wrapping up the first nine verses here to give you the two invitations, says she is loud, she is seductive, she knows nothing. What does she do? She sits. She sits at the door of her house. And then she takes a seat in the high places. You think about taking a seat in the high places, chairs were not common in this time, just as meat was not common in this time. To take a seat in the high places, to take a chair meant that most of the uses of this word, all but seven, I believe, indicate royalty, it indicates a throne. And so there's some aspect of seating on a throne, being seated on a throne. We think about history throughout that. And when somebody becomes a professor in history, they would give them a chair. We actually continue some of that by having a chair of something at universities. And so you have a faculty member who's distinguished 
distinguished, who sits in a chair of whatever. It indicates that you are the teacher. You even think about the Catholic, uh, the Catholic religion and the Pope. When the Pope speaks ex cathedra, meaning from the chair, then the Catholic people bow down to that authority and they say that that's okay. Now, we don't agree with their view of tradition, but that's the way it operates. The chair is symbolic. And here you have a simple woman, a loud woman, a seductive woman, and it says here it's personifying folly as folly is something that has no wisdom but sits in the chair of wisdom, sits at the door of the house, takes a seat in the town, calls to all who are passing by, those who are going straight on their way, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Do you see it there with verse four? It's the exact same words. It adds an and. And to him who lacks sense, she says, it's often the way with temptation, it mocks itself as though it's something good, but it doesn't tell you what's to come. What does she offer? Stolen water. Folly offers stolen water. What is stolen water? Throughout Proverbs, you see that water, not from your own system, stolen water could be sexual immorality of some sort. It's something that you didn't work for, you didn't earn. It's not yours, it is stolen, it is somebody else's. This is laziness, this is not hard work, this is not diligence. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant and inside of us, our own sinful temptation, our own sinful nature wells up inside of us when we start thinking about the heightened the heightened emotions of potentially getting caught, that heightened sense of awareness that takes place. Oh, I'm doing something I didn't. I didn't earn this and I still get it. Uh, It's it's secret. Nobody's gonna know. I'm gonna get away with something and it appeals to us and it appeals to us at any age. I wanna get get the reward without doing the work. I don't wanna put in the labor. I wanna get to the end. And so I say to you students, this appeals to you too. I wanna get the grade for the test, but I don't wanna study. I don't wanna learn the facts. I wanna get the degree. I wanna go into the career field but I don't want to do all the hard work it takes to really be good at it and to be excellent at it. And folly here pulls on us. It tugs on us. It says, get the reward, but don't put in the work. And our sin nature says, yes, I want that. It says to us, enjoy the pleasures of sex without the hard work of a good marriage. Enjoy the thrill of pornography. But where is it going to lead you is the question. It's the appearance of the same sophistication without any of the substance. Proverbs 20, 17 tells us about bread gained by deceit. It says it is sweet to a man, but look at the imagery here. Afterwards, his mouth will be full of gravel. Do you want to eat gravel this morning? Isaiah 5, 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. So what's the conclusion of the matter? The text has set this up in just such a way to give us the invitation to wisdom, to tell us the difference, to give us the invitation to folly and what stands behind the door of folly. Verse 18. Dead are there. The bread which turns to gravel. The deceitfulness that tugs on our sinful nature leads us to death. To Sheol. And that's why students, if I could make the decision for each one of you, she's wisdom, not folly. But I can't. It's your decision. 
You look at the facts. They have similarities. They both have homes. They both offer an invitation. They both have a mill of sorts. They both call from a high point in the town, but look at the differences. One ends in life, verse 6. One ends in death, verse 18. One built her house, verse 1. One sits in folly, verse 14. One slaughtered the meat, verse 2. The other has bread eaten in secret, verse 17. One has mixed wine. The other has stolen water, verse 17. One has set her table. Folly's just loud and seductive. One has insight. The other knows nothing. One offers life, the other offers death. And we say to this, there's no choice here. It's clear. We choose wisdom. This is so obvious. We choose wisdom. And yet our sin nature tugs at our soul each and every day and says to us with a pull, this is where my soul says to me, this is where I want to go from the sin nature that's in me. And so what do I do every morning when I get up? I renew my mind so that I will not be conformed to this world, but I will be transformed by the word of God. This is why reading the Bible, your quiet time, your prayer time, this is why understanding what God has said to us is so important because without this, it's that sin nature that will tug us to the the door of death. And perhaps you're sitting here in the audience this morning and you know you've gone through this door more times than you care to remember. The great thing about this is it's not about what you've done in your past. It's about the grace of Jesus Christ offered you at the cross. And right now you have an opportunity to say from this day forward, from this moment forward, I choose wisdom. I want a relationship with wisdom. I want to dig into God's word. I want to walk with God. I want to know God. I'm not relying on my parents, on my church. I'm not relying on chapel. I'm not relying on the Bible minor. It's me and God. It's God's word in my heart, in my mind, in my soul, living for him, for his glory. I choose wisdom. Are you seeking immediate gratification or long-term satisfaction? You will never become tomorrow what you are not doing today. Friends, this is no simple choice. But I plead with you. Choose wisdom. Oh, dear God, our hearts are so fallen and so prone to flee you that we pray by your grace and by your mercy, you would bind our hearts to you, Lord. Lord, help us in the moments of temptation to flee, to choose wisdom. In the moments of major life decisions, Lord, help us to see with clarity what your word tells us. Lord, help us to trust in you, for you are faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you are dismissed.